Hi folks, this is Mon Longwell, and I'm glad you're here today for another episode of the Jesus Society Podcast, a conversation exploring relationship, renewal, and purpose in the Kingdom of God. This is episode 86 of the Jesus Society Podcast, and um, I am here with my coffee, and it is it is a fairly hot week here in um, southern middle Tennessee, um, as I know it is for lots of other people in lots of other places. Um, but um, I don't like heat. Um, it's it's uh, uncomfortable. <laughs> I um, I like cool. I like uh, I like snow. I like um, I have northern blood, and yet I live in the south. But today is a very special day. Also, today is a very good day because yesterday uh, our son. Uh, got engaged. He asked his girlfriend to marry him. She said yes. There was really never any doubt that she was going to say yes. <laughs> but um, they are they are engaged, and so we are all um, reveling in the uh, in the joy and uh, and hope and excitement of that. Um, and they're starting to plan a wedding, and I have no idea when that'll be. But but we're all very excited about that. She's a sweet. Uh, a sweet girl who we've known, uh, they've been dating for about three years now, so it's been a little while, but uh, we've gotten to know her pretty well. Uh, we've gotten to know her family a little bit, and um, we're all we're all very happy. Um, they, um, they, he asked her to marry him yesterday, and then we all got together. Um, they had a big day together, and then um, her parents and us, um, and we all got together last night and had ice cream and just sort of enjoyed uh, being together and enjoyed the uh, the glow, the 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 new engagement glow. So uh, that's a good thing. That's a good thing. So today, um, with coffee firmly in hand, uh, and this is actually my second cup of the day. Um, today we're going to continue our series on following Jesus in in the 21st century and in particular uh, our look at the importance and practice of love. Um, Last week we talked about the importance of learning to both live in and from the love of God. Um, We we said, you know, you you simply cannot give what, what we do not have. Uh, and loving others always grows out of and is fueled and energized by the experience and reality of God's own love for us. Well, today I want to talk a bit about how how we actually learn to love, kind of more the the mechanics of of um, how we grow and cultivate the habits of heart and mind that allow us to generously and freely love others. And and what I mean by loving generously and freely is learning to love in a way that is not governed by a need for that love to be reciprocated. You know, uh, a lot of our love is is kind of selfish that way. Um, we love so that we will so that we will be loved. And of course that is worlds apart from the New Testament's assertion that we love because he first loved us. 1 John 4.19. So, how do we cultivate the capacity for generous, self-giving love in our lives? Stick around, and we'll see if we can unpack some of that and help out with that a little bit. 
Okay, uh, like like everything else um, in following God, God is our example, and He is our north star. And so we simply have to start with understanding that the outward flow of the love of God, which is what we're what we're trying to emulate, right? What we're trying to um, put into our own lives. The outward flow of the love of God is rooted in and modeled after creation itself. So we we don't get to we don't get to see this through any other lens other than the way God has interacted with the world. And the creation is a is a big part of that. And actually, uh, the temple is an inextricably linked part of the creation story. And and we've got to wrap our minds around this. Like if we're really going to understand, I think, if we're really going to understand and practice love in the world, we got to understand how God's coming at this, okay? And um, creation is important, and the temple is an inextricably linked part of the creation story. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, stick with me here for a few minutes. Let me Give me a chance to kind of lay this out. I think this is really important, okay? Temple imagery winds its way all through the Bible, starting in Genesis 1. And I can't unpack this in grand detail here, but um, I'll put a link in the show notes to a good book that lays this out pretty well. Um, But increasingly, biblical scholars are seeing ancient Near Near Eastern temple imagery in the story of creation and the Garden of Eden. The, the Garden of Eden actually functions as a temple of sorts. And it seems like an odd thing to us, but, but people that, that lived in the ancient Near East in the, in the time that Genesis was written, they would have got that. They would have seen that. They see things that, in this story that we don't see. Uh, and again, I, I, there's, a, there's a book I'll put in the show notes that, that lays this out pretty well. But the reason that this kind of sounds strange to our ears is that, that we have come to think, generally when we think about a temple, when, you know, if I ask you, what is a temple? You're probably going to say something like, well, it's a big stone building where religious rituals are performed. That is, that is the lens through which almost exclusively in our modern culture that we see temples. It's a, it's a big building um, or, or maybe not a big building, but it's a building. A temple is a building where religious rituals are practiced. That's, that's how we see temples, all right? Um, but there's a lot more going on to the idea of a temple in Scripture and certainly in the ancient Near East than that, okay? And this temple imagery is packed with a lot more meaning than we typically think. It is the, the temple is not just a place where religious rituals are carried out, okay? In the Bible, the temple is always and has always been the place where the living God comes to dwell among his people. And, and I don't have time today to unpack all that that means, but the New Testament writers certainly understood this in grand detail. And if we think of it that way, if we think of a temple as the place where God comes to dwell among his people, it's a little bit easier to see how the Garden of Eden might actually function as a temple of sorts. 
So having said that, and, and admittedly skipping over a whole bunch of temple background material, I don't have time to unpack here. Um, although I have talked a little bit about this before, particularly uh, in episode 82, um, which was just a few weeks ago um, in your time. Um, it, it's a, a month or so ago in my time, but <laughs> these are all going to be right together. Um, and I'll put a link to that episode 82 in the show notes. Um, but throughout the New Testament, and maybe especially in John chapter 12, if you're attuned to the imagery at play, what you're seeing in John chapter 12, and, and you see this all through the New Testament as well, it is clear that the new temple, and God's about God's building a new temple, okay? The new temple is, in fact, the Father's love present in Jesus, binding his people to him, breathing on them the promise of the Spirit. You see that in John 12. Jesus is repeatedly portrayed in Scripture as the new temple, the new place where God comes to dwell among his people. Um, you remember when Jesus is born, they, he's called Emmanuel, which means God with us. And he is, he is repeatedly, uh, there's all kinds of, some, and some of this stuff we've talked about, but there's all sorts of places in the New Testament, in the Gospels, where this is laid out. Uh, Luke maybe does this a little better than anybody else, but the, the other gospel writers get it too. Um, so I'm, I'm jumping ahead here a little bit, but Jesus is the new temple. And later on, and we're going to talk about this in a minute, you and I as Christians are the temple as well. Okay. Um, Jesus' followers have been drawn together and, and, and again, this is back to John chapter 12. Jesus' followers have been drawn together um, as new temple people so that they can be new temple people in the world, so that the love with which God the Father has loved God the Son may be by the Spirit in them and extended out to the rest of the world as well. And so if we're going to use the word love in a Christian sense, it kind of needs to be anchored in some of this imagery, and it needs to be anchored in the Gospel of John. And John is, of course, anchored in Isaiah and the Psalms and all those wonderful passages about the unshakable, unbreakable love of God going all the way back to Genesis and creation itself. Because the church is to be kind of an advance guard, a sign to the world, a model of new creation. And that's where the link to the temple comes in. The tabernacle in the wilderness and the temple later on in Jerusalem were themselves small working models of new creation, little places where heaven and earth are held together and where the living God of heaven comes to live among his people. And of course, those are those are dangerous places to be, right? Because when you stand at the intersection of heaven and earth, dangerous things can happen, as as we've seen in the Old Testament. Which is why we stand there at that intersection, only in and through Jesus Himself and in the power of the Spirit. But as Christians, we stand there. We live at the intersection of heaven and earth because the Spirit of God lives within us. And that means that we actually stand there ourselves as the new temple of the living God, the place where heaven and earth meet. 
And that is stated explicitly in, in passages like 1 Corinthians 3.16, 2 Corinthians 6.16, and a few other places in the New Testament. Okay, And the sign of all that must be the sign of love. Now, let me take a minute and, and address a, a little bit of a problem with all of this. And, and the problem we run into has to do with the way that we understand heaven and earth. Because we've just talked a little bit about standing at the intersection of heaven and earth. Well, let's make sure we're on the same page as, as regarding how we understand heaven and earth. There are a number of philosophies that want to really pull heaven and earth apart. Um, on one hand, you've got the, the materialists who will say that heaven is the birds, we are, we are people of the earth, and we're just going to pay attention to earth things, right? On the other hand, you've got the Platonists, and many of whom, in fact, are Christians, who will say things like, and I, when I say this, and I've talked a little bit about this before, when I say this, you're going to sound think this is familiar, probably, most of you. And they're going to say, well, we don't really want to get into involved in, you know, society or the politics or worldly stuff. That's just all that's just all worldly. The earth is going to get burned up one day anyway, after all, and we'll be out of here out of here at that point. And so we're just going to kind of ignore all that kind of stuff and cultivate our own sort of little private spirituality and me and God, God and me, and we're going to be okay. And the rest of that mess in the world, we're just not going to pay attention to it. Both of those perspectives are a failure to grasp the biblical doctrine of creation and to grasp the fact that when God made the world, it is, it is a good world and it is a world of love and it is designed to bring heaven and earth together. And we are now the people through whom God intends to do just that. We are the temple of the living and loving God. And so if we're going to understand love, we're going to have to understand creation and the fact that God loves creation. And in the Old Testament, it is clear God makes this beautiful creation out of pure, generous love. It is the overflowing of love. God doesn't have to create but God is generous, outflowing love. And so he makes a world and he fills it with his goodness. And he says it again and again, let there be. Let there be seas. Let there be birds. Let there be fields and trees. Let there be image-bearing human beings. And it is the generous, outward-looking love of God that we see there. And within that, what we find is that God makes this beautiful world in order to eventually, of course, things go, things go kind of haywire, right? But, but God's intent always, and from the start, was to eventually flood this creation with his own love and presence. And he'll, he'll do that in a fresh way. And that's what both Isaiah and Habakkuk say. Habakkuk 2.14 says, The whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea, which is a really interesting statement. How do the, how do the waters cover the sea? Like, that's a strange... If you think too logically about that, you'll get all bound up in a, 
in a kind of a loop there that you'll never get out of. How do the waters cover the sea? The waters are the sea. And that is exactly the point there. The whole earth shall be full of the knowledge of the, of the glory of the Lord in the same way that the waters cover the sea. They're, they're, they're so one and the same. That is how the earth is going to be full of the glory of the Lord. So the whole creation is, is made from the outset as a receptacle for the love of God. And again, this is, this is temple image. Again, the whole of creation is is made as a place for God in all of his outward flowing love to dwell among his people. You see it in Psalm 72, which is one of the wonderful poems about what life should be like under the ideal king. I think anybody that runs for office, if they get elected, they ought to have this, they ought to have Psalm 72 printed huge and put on their wall, right? As a reminder of what what rulership is supposed to look like okay but read psalm 72 like it's it's the it's beautiful um he will judge your people according to what's right it says he will defend the poor he will look after the widow he will care for the needy and the orphan compassion and mercy will be the hallmarks of his reign and it goes on and on emphasizing this is what justice looks like caring for the little people at the bottom of the pile. And at the end of it all, it says that the whole earth may be filled with God's glory. Amen and amen. Isn't that a wonderful picture? The reign of the Messiah enabling the whole creation to be flooded with God's glory because in the, in the, in the end, justice and love turn out to be two ways of saying the very same thing. God so radically caring for his world that everything that is wrong, and especially when the, when the weak are crushed by the strong, everything that is wrong will be made right. And so the earth will be full of the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. That's what God makes this world for, so that it can be a receptacle of his love. And that has always been God's ultimate intention for creation which is why at the end of the book of Revelation, we see the new heavens and the new earth with the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth where God will at last live among his people again. But in the meantime, until that day, God's generous love is to be shared with the world through his people, you and me, who again are his, his temple on earth, his image-bearing image bearing humans to bear his image before the world and share his love with the world. We are to be the people in whom God dwells and through whom his great, generous, outflowing love is shared with the world. So the, the, the temple imagery, I think, undergirds and has to undergird a lot of our understanding of the love of God and serves as the, as the, as the background for understanding our call to love others. And this is important because without this, this sort of framework, if we don't see it through that lens, simply telling you to be people of love is just kind of an encouragement, I think, to beat yourself up morally and say, well, I've tried that. I'm just, I'm not very good at being loving. I, I guess I better just try a little harder. 
and, and trying a little harder is, isn't, isn't an altogether bad thing, right? I mean, developing Christian character certainly takes some effort. And again, that's not altogether bad, but, but it's no good just reminding yourself to love, you know, hanging a, hanging a sticky note to your bathroom mirror that says, be more loving today. And you look at it every morning and you think, oh, I guess I better, I guess I better try harder today. That just doesn't work very well because we're, we're, we were never, ever meant to just do this all by ourselves out of our own gumption. It's a good word, isn't it? Gumption. Um, we do this in and through and with God and His Spirit. So we need to be worshiping people. We need to be praying people. We need to be people who are experiencing day by day and week by week the powerful, transforming love of God in whatever areas of our lives that we need it. Because, you know, deep down... You are loved like that. And if you know that, then you've got the confidence and will and resources to be able to love others. And love then flows naturally out of a heart itself renewed and nourished by the love of God. We talked about that last week. And we've all seen great examples of people who do this so beautifully. You know, people who are totally unafraid and go and love the unlovable, those who everyone else seems to ignore and walk on by. I've seen Christian brothers and sisters that are just so at ease, sharing their lives generously and warmly with people who other people are just afraid of. And they can give love so fully and so selflessly only because they have received love so fully as part of the family of God, the family who are being renewed and loved by God himself. Okay, so all of that's fine and good, but how do we learn to actually be more loving? You probably thought we were never going to get here, right? Well, of course, part of the problem with all this is that love is a complicated thing, right? And, and in English, we've got one word, love, to do about 50 different jobs. I heard someone say recently that this, the single word love has been trying to do far too many things at once, and somebody really needs to sit down with it and explain the dangers of multitasking. <laughs> I think that's funny. Sorry, coffee. Um, so, uh, C.S. Lewis wrote the book, The Four Loves, uh, about 60 years ago. Uh, Gary Chapman wrote the book, The Five Love Languages, about 20 years ago. And, and today, I think there's about 45, not just four or five. And, and yeah, the, the Greeks had a few different words for love, and, and those are helpful to understand, although sometimes they, they use them sort of interchangeably and not quite so narrowly as we sometimes think. And we're going to talk a little more about that next week. But we can easily kind of collapse into thinking that love is just an emotion. And if it's an emotion, it kind of becomes nonsense to, to command somebody love to love. Because how do, you, how do you command somebody to feel something for someone that they don't really feel and they're not really even sure they want to feel, right? 
But that's a little bit like putting the cart before the horse. So, of course, the emotions matter. And if you know anything about personality types, whether you do thing, something like the Enneagram or the Myers-Briggs, both of which are very good, and, and the Enneagram is not, I know, technically a, a personality thing, but it functions that way. Anyway, you know that we all approach these things from different angles, okay? Um, some people live in their heads so much that they've, they've, they have to come to the emotional side of things by reminding themselves about it intellectually. I've got a friend like that. A good friend, he says, he says that if you ask him how he feels about something, he says he'll. He says, "Well, I have to think about that." <laughs> right? Some people are like that. Um, some people just kind of feel everything constantly all the time, and you know we don't think much at all about it. But my point is that love, whenever we meet it in the Bible, love is a covenanted commitment of God to his human creatures, to his world. God so loved the world, we're told. Now, we know, of course, that God saw all kinds of things in the world that grieved him to his heart. But grief, I hope you know from from your own experience with things like bereavement, grief is just the shadow side of love, right? God is grieved in his heart in Genesis 6 precisely because He so loved the world, not because he stopped loving. His love takes the form of that grief, and that grief takes him all the way to the cross. And so love for us is a commitment, and commitments are hard to keep sometimes, right? And we sometimes have to remind ourselves to keep those commitments. And out of those commitments, the the affections and the emotions, which may go up and down with the weather, with our own health, with all kinds of other things, our emotions sometimes have to be told and kind of reined in and told, well, when you know, when you're just feeling full of love for other people, man, that's great. Enjoy it. Just relish that. But when you're not feeling it, well, too bad. We need to be loving anyway, right? Another problem with all this is that we live in a culture that has come to value authenticity and spontaneity above everything else. But here's the thing about this. And, and, and so because we, we value authenticity and spontaneity, we, we tend to kind of poo-poo um, any sort of talk about love that, that we don't feel. If you don't feel it, it's not authentic, right? If it doesn't just flow naturally, um, it's not. It's not authentic. It's not real. It's fake. But here's the thing about all that: in genuine Christian virtue theory, authenticity and spontaneity is what you get when you have been practicing the habits and of heart and mind and action for so long that that, that what you do now comes naturally. So here's what it's like. I'll give you a couple of examples of that. It's like, for instance, watching a, a, a talented piano player or, or guitarist who plays a, a beautifully complex piece of music, music and, it, and, and watching them and listening to them, it, it all just seems to flow so effortlessly and free and naturally. And, and for them, it is. 
They, they just have to see a piece of music and it almost seems like it plays itself. But of course you understand that that is only so because they have literally spent years and years practicing their scales and their fingering and honing their craft. My, my son uh, started playing trumpet, uh, I, th- I think, in the third grade. And if you've ever had a, a child learning an instrument, you know what I mean when I, I say that those first few years of going to his concerts were something that only a parent could love, <laughs> right? They were kind of bad at the outset. But you know, by the time he was a senior in high school, he was, he was pretty good. Um, and everything just seemed to flow a lot easier. Um, by that point, he, was, he, had, um, he had joined the jazz band. And jazz, if you don't know anything about jazz, jazz, there, there's a lot of improvisation in jazz. It's kind of built into jazz, right? And watching, watching him play, especially jazz, as a senior in high school, um, it, it, was, it was a joy. It was a delight uh, to listen to him. And, and he really did make things seem kind of effortless. But that is only, again, because of the years and years and years of hard work that he put in. So to use another illustration... Um, if you've ever tried learning a new language, you know how utterly difficult it is and how long it takes before you can even have the simplest of conversations with somebody who is a native speaker of that language. But if you keep working at it, eventually you become what they call fluent. And at that point, you can, you can talk to just about anybody, anybody who speaks that language. And not only can you keep up, but you start to learn all the little nuances of the language, right? Every language has has a lot of little subtle nuances. You've got figures of speech that don't translate exactly literally. You've got idiom. You've got slang. You've got all the the little things that that mark out a native speaker from a non-native speaker. And eventually, you learn even those things. And, And then, well, you've really got it. And it all becomes easy, and you don't have to think about your words anymore as you speak them. You, you, you're fluent. You can have any conversation with anybody, right? And I'm told that for some people who have really mastered another language, sometimes you even start to dream in that language because by that point, it's not just something you engage in with great effort, but it has become part of you. So you see where we're going with this? As Christians, we are called to be people for whom love will be like that. For whom love will be the language that we learn with great difficulty. The, the, the musical instrument that we learn to play with, with a great deal of practice. It's a language that with lots of strange words and odd bits of vocabulary. It's an instrument that we play. We, we have to learn to limber up our fingers to, to make them go in directions that they don't naturally want to go. And you just have to practice it. But my goodness, once you've got it, then you can speak it naturally and it just happens. So authenticity is the, is the result, the reward at the end of the hard work. And, and, and listen, 
when you when you see that, when you see it in a family, when you see it in a church, when you see it in society, oh my, it is a beautiful, beautiful thing. So God calls us to extend his love, the love we have experienced and continue to experience, the love in which we stand and that we enjoy to extend that love to all the rest of creation, his creation. We're on his side now. We're part of his family. And so as part of his family, we get to enjoy all the privileges of having God as our father the intimacy and the and the and the certitude of his love and we, we talked about that last week but as his sons and daughters we we also inherit the family business so to speak which is to extend his love and care to the world around us and so god through jesus and the power of the spirit is teaching us how to love we're learning how to love from him it is our it is our apprenticeship if you will and of course we have to practice loving so that eventually we'll be so good at it that it will become second nature to us and if we want to know how what that practice looks like i think the books of colossians and ephesians especially ephesians are 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 pretty helpful here in showing us what what practice looks like okay um, especially Colossians 3 and Ephesians 4. And in a, in a nutshell, and you can read this and just meditate on this and pray about this. Paul, Paul tells us there that, we, that first off, we need to put some things to death, okay? And he uses that phrase intentionally because if we don't kill off these things in our lives, they will kill us, okay? And we're talking about things like sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, and greed, which Paul says is idolatry. That's Colossians 3, verse 5. He then tells us that we need to lay some things aside. That they're not, we don't need to put them to death. They're not necessarily going to kill us, but they're certainly going to trip us up. We need to lay them aside or we need to put them off, depending how your translation renders that. And we're talking here about things like anger and wrath and malice and slander, and foul language, and lying. Okay, that's Colossians 3, 8, and 9. And then we're told that we need to put some things on. We need to bring some things into our lives that might or might not have been there. Things like compassion, and kindness, and humility, and gentleness, and patience, and forgiveness, love, peace, and thankfulness. That's Colossians 3, 12 and following. Doing all those things, putting to death some things, putting off some things, putting on some things, that's going to require some, some time, some patience, and a great deal of practice. And it will also take, and if we don't see this, we're, we're missing something big. It is also going to take prayer. And it is going to take the support of the rest of the family of God. But as we develop 
with God's help, the love of God within us, all that's going to become easier and more natural and more spontaneous and more authentic and more effective. And as we do, we can increasingly live out the two major challenges that are, that are yet to come. And that those are what we're going to discuss in the next week or two. And with that, I want to thank you for joining us today. I hope you'll join us again next week. As always, we would appreciate it if you tell others about the podcast. If you enjoy the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Amazon Music, wherever you go to get your podcast. Please visit us on our on our website, thejesussociety.com. You can find us on uh, YouTube and Odyssey. Um, and if you search, search for us there, you'll find us. And if you'd like to support the show and our related ministry, click on the support TJS link on the Jesus Society website to find out how to do that. Thank you for listening. And remember, you are greatly loved.